0: Good afternoon, I'm Lou Eisen, this is Ring Talk. And today uh, we are going to discuss the fatal third fight between, that took place March 24th, 1962, at the mecca of boxing in New York City, Madison Square Garden. And it took place between the defending two-time welterweight champ, Benny Kid Perrette from Cuba, and the challenger and former champion, emile griffith who was born in the u.s virgin islands benny kid was born march 14 1937 in santa clara cuba the this fight centers on several factors it was a very acrimonious bitter fight they did not like each other this was a grudge match without a doubt and the grudge started before the second fight at the Way in um It was known in boxing circles in the early 60s that Emil Griffith was gay. Wasn't mentioned, the press knew it. You weren't even allowed to write about it. In fact, Pete Hamill uh, told me at the Hall of Fame one year that he almost strangled his editor at his newspaper because he wrote that what had happened, and he said that, uh, which is true, Referred to Griffith as being gay, he called him a medicone, which is faggot in Spanish. And so when he wrote that down, he called him a homosexual using a pejorative term. Um, what happened was that uh, Hamill's editor changed it to he referred to him as an unman, which drove not Hamill nuts because he thought, what's an unman? A bread box. Is an unman a lamp? Is an unman, but you weren't allowed to mention it back then. So there were three factors: the the homophobic taunting of Griffith by Perret that went way over the line. The fact that Perret, by the time he defended his title for the third time, was a shot fighter and should not have been fighting, and also why Hall of Fame referee, one of the best ever, Ruby Goldstein, just stood there. He froze. As Griffith in the twelfth round landed just under thirty consecutive headshots, after the first three, four headshots, Pratt was gone. His arms were by his side. He wasn't defending himself. He was just a punching bag, and Goldstein froze. Only time it ever happened to him in his career, and he retired after that. He never refereed another bout. Pratt grew up in in uh, Cuba. He was born in Santa Clara, and he loved the fight and I explain it this way. Most kids, most people, but especially young boys at, you know, between 7, 8, 10, 12, 14, they don't fight unless they're cornered. They just won't. It's a natural instinct. Perret loved to fight. He lived to fight. He would go around picking on bigger guys just so he could fight. And he loved to test himself against other people. So, Pret would fight all the time. And he got into the amateurs and he did well. And people loved him. And his style didn't really change from the amateurs to the pros. Pret was a, a walk in, face first slugger. And that's why fans loved him because he guaranteed action. His hero was the great Kid Gavilan. And Gavilan was a tremendous fighter, an exciting fighter. Gavilan understood, like Ali after him, that you you uh, you have to put on the show. As we saw last night, it wasn't such a great fight with Tyson Fury and Dillian White, but it's sports, but it's also entertainment. And Gavilan understood that, and he was Perez. Hello, Sheila from Atlanta. Thank you for joining us. He was Perrette's, uh hero. The thing is. There's a great difference between the two men, which is as brilliant as as uh, Gavline was offensively, he was equally masterful on the defense. He was a hard guy to hit. Remember, he, he came within a few points of beating the great Sugar Ray Robinson. Pratt had no defense. Pratt, the, the fighter that you would compare him to, a modern fighter, from the last 20, 30 years would be Arturo Gatti. Now, before people get up in arms, Gotti was a very good technical fighter. He just eschewed that later in his career for becoming a power puncher. And it comes down to one immutable fact, asses in the seats. The more people you can fill the arena with, the more money you can demand. And knockout artists will always get paid more. And with the exception, of course, of Muhammad Ali. So so Pret is doing well in the amateurs. He's knocking people out. The problem with his style is it has a short shelf life. You, the body can only take a certain finite amount of punishment, and then after that, the person's body will start to break down. And that's what happened to Peret, although I'm getting ahead of myself here in the long run during his professional career. He was spotted after he'd moved from Santa Clara to Havana, and he was then managed by Manuel Alfaro, who's a rather shady character in boxing history. So Alfaro started to manage him and Pret had his first 25 fights in Cuba of which he won 24. Pret had a major problem with Alfaro as his manager, which was Benny Kidd Perrette was illiterate, couldn't read or write in Spanish or English, couldn't count. So he was at the mercy of Alfaro. And the problem with that, of course, is you could give him a number that he was gonna get paid for his fight or you could tell him the percentage that Alfero would get from his purse, but it meant nothing to him because he was illiterate. And he rarely got paid whatever he was promised. After he has his first 25 fights in Cuba, Alfero, who was mob-connected, uses his New York mob connections to Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo, the Lucchese family, moves Perret to New York, and Pret starts to zoom up the welterweight rankings. Now, Perrette was good. He was winning. The fights weren't fixed. Pratt was getting his opportunity, and he was beating guys consistently. At that time, Emil Griffith had taken a circuitous route to getting into professional boxing. And what had happened with Emil was he followed his father and eventually the rest of his family to the United States. His favorite sport was baseball. That's the one he wanted to be a professional in. But he needed a job to support himself. So he got a job in a woman's hat store, millinery owned by Howie Albert. Howie Albert was the business partner of all one of the all-time greatest trainers, Gil Clancy. Howie managed a business and boxing and Gil trained them. And one day while he's working in the back of the hat factory making these hats in in the late 50s, it's a brutally hot, and I've been to New York, and if you've been there, you know how hot it gets. There's stifling hot day. Windows are open, but there's no air conditioning. He's pouring sweat, and he asks Howie Albert. This is the story they gave. If he could take his shirt off, and he did, and he couldn't believe the musculature, the physique that, uh, that Griffith had. So he said, you should try boxing, at which point Griffith said, why would I do that? I don't like being hit, and I don't like hitting other people. But he got him to the gym. He was a quick learner. He was an all-around athlete. And in no time, he was doing well in the amateurs. And he'd moved up very quickly in the amateurs, at which point he said to Gil Clancy, which was true, I come from a very large family. I have a lot of siblings. I have to make money to support them. I have to help out. So he turned pro. And with Griffith, Griffith had his first – I guess his first pro fight was uh, June – Second, 1958, it was a four-round win over Joe Parnum at St. Nicholas Arena, which is where Benny Kid Perrette fought all the time, too. And so Griffith starts to do well. He starts to move up in the rankings. Both men are doing well. And Prett is the first one to get a shot at the World Welterweight title, and he wins it by defeating, in 1960, he defeats Don Jordan uh, for the title. Uh, by unanimous decision i believe it was at the the las vegas convention center so he defeats don jordan and the problem and i'm going to refer to my notes here the problem for many fighters that die the reason that these fighters die obviously from severe brain trauma but it's from having too many fights over too short a period of time and you have to see this. He wins the title May 27th, 1960. Two months later, he fights Garnett Hart. One month after that, he fights Danny Moyer, who is a great fighter. Then he fights the ultra-tough Luis Federico Thompson four months later. Two months after that, he fights Gaspar Ortega. And if the name sounds familiar, it should. Ortega's son Mike is one of the top referees in the sport today, and a great guy. So he fights Ortega. Two months after that. He fights Emil Griffith, 1961, April 1st at Miami Beach. And the three fights between Griffith and Prett took on a similar pattern. What happened was, in each of their fights, Prett's doing well at the beginning. He's walking in and he's, you know, hell-bent for leather. Griffith is trying to fight Prett on the outside. And for some reason, and it happens with fighters, it happens with all people, Griffith loses focus during the fight, and he starts to sleepwalk through the fight. And after about four or five rounds, Gil Clancy gets in his face and said, listen, you're not the only contender for the welterweight title. The division's stacked. You lose. There's no reason for him to give you another fight. You're done. You're 22. You're done. It will be over. And so Griffith turns up the heat, starts battering. Pret around the ring, and in the 13th round, catches him with the left hook, drives him back into ropes, hits him again and again and again. Griffith, excuse me, Pret drops to the canvas. He is out cold. Referee counts 10, and then Pret's corner men have to lift him and carry him to the corner. And Griffith wins the title. And right after Griffith wins the title, you know, he has a couple of fights, and then he fights Pret again. And their second fight, September thirtieth, nineteen sixty-one, and he loses that fight by split decision. Now I have to mention there were about twenty sports writers there, ringside. Sixteen of them picked Griffith. Now a lot of times when you watch a fight, when I mean, the fight's over, you look at how the fighters look, how badly their faces are beaten up, and the old age-old question of boxing is: Well, who would you rather be? Well, after the fight, Griffith's face was pristine. There were no marks. Perrette's eyes both were literally swelled shut, and he had a huge cut under his left eye. He was leaking blood from his mouth and his nose. And and yet he was given the decision, and he won back his title. Now, the thing here is uh, he didn't take time off after that. He wins back to title, and he's he's fighting again. You know he's fighting two months later, and then a month after that, and then a month after that, and a couple of months after that, he keeps fighting. There was no time off ever, for Perret to allow his body to heal, and it was, it was detrimental to him in the long run. But of course, during his career, because a fighter can only take so much punishment before their body and mind gives out completely. So after the second fight, um. Or after the first fight, they they as I said, they have the second fight. Pratt wins it back, and Pratt has a couple of fights. And what does Pret do at that point in time? He does something amazing, which he should not have done, which may have cost him his life. He challenges the great Gene Fulmer, who was built like a Sherman tank, a middleweight, the world undisputed world middleweight champion who'd beaten Ray Robinson and who could punch like a heavyweight, he challenges him for the middleweight title. Only a couple months after winning his title back from Griffith. And he takes a tremendous pounding. He, he's sort of competitive in the first three, four rounds because of his hand speed. But he's not boxing Fomer. He's standing toe-to-toe. He's squaring up and slugging it out with Fomer, And that's what Gene Fomer wanted him to do. And, you know, as the great Charlie Goldman said, you don't fight the other guy's fight. No one ever ever invented a game just to be beaten at their own game. It doesn't work that way. You have to use guile and cunning and Pratt didn't have that in the ring. He just had his power. And over the course of the fight, um, Fulmer just gave him a phenomenal beating, just pounded him down, knocked him down repeatedly and then knocked him out in the 10th round. And it was a severe beating. Now, here's an interesting thing. Fulmer won the fight, but didn't fight again for a year. That's how vicious the fight was. And he said, I never hit a man harder and more often than I hit Benny Perrette. I hit him, sledgehammer blows. And what happens after the fight? He's fighting just over three months later for the third time against Griffith, defending his title. And that should not have happened. His manager, Manuel Afaro let it happen the New York State Athletic Commission, let it happen. People should have seen the beating he took. They did, but they did nothing about it. They let him keep fighting, and that was wrong. He should have taken time off after the former fight to allow his body to recover, and should have had a full physical. In fact, after the former fight and right up to the night before, the third Griffith fight, he complained to his wife, Lucy, that, He was having nosebleeds, ear bleeds, his eyes hurt, the back of his head was throbbing. He's troubled with his vision. And this, these were all indications that he had brain trauma, but no one did anything about it. Now, in deference to the New York State Athletic Commission, they didn't know about it. So people will say, well, how come he went for the examination and they did nothing? Because Pratt said he felt great. Never told them he had a problem. I mean, neither did his manager. Why didn't his manager, Manuel Farrell send him to see a neurosurgeon? You know, send him to the doctor, send him to the hospital. Why? Well, because if he had done that and the news leaked out, the fight would have been stopped. They wouldn't have allowed the third fight. They would have suspended Pret, If not for six months, they would have suspended him permanently. They would have taken away his boxing license. So Pret had no choice but to keep fighting. And as as his wife Lucy said, he was illiterate. He couldn't read or write, couldn't count. What else was he going to do but fight? He had no choice but to fight. And so Perrette, you know, just over three months after taking a ferocious beating from Fulmer, had to step into the Madison Square Garden ring and take on Emil Griffith, who was probably the best fighter in the world at that point, pound for pound. So that was one of the controversies. Perrette fought too often in too short a time span. And his manager wanted him to keep fighting, to make the money. And the other thing, of course, was he never got the money he was promised. He was always given a little bit of money, but never the full extent of what he had signed for. He put an X for his name. He, as I said, to be with a wolf like Faro and his mob contacts, Counted against Pratt because Alfero was going to keep him fighting forever. So before the second fight, they had a weigh-in. New York State Athletic Commission has a weigh-in. The press is there. They had a weigh-in before all their fights, like you do today. But it, it was a casual weigh-in for the first fight. They were they weren't really they were kind of friends. They were more acquaintances. Pratt and Griffith lived in the same neighborhood in New York. They shot basketball together. You know, if they bumped into each other on the street, do you want to go for coffee? Sure. So, you know, they got along. For the second fight in front of the press is when Perrette started to call Griffith a medicone, which is Spanish for faggot. He kept referring to him that way. I'm going to beat you up, and then I'm going to beat up your husband. He kept saying that. In fact, Griffith was bisexual. He was actually married at one point and had a daughter. But this was not only jumping over the line. This was taking a, a running start to jump over the line. No one discussed that th- those things back then. Never got into the press. The media knew about it, but they shut up. A lot of the media, especially the older white conservative media, who knew, they knew Joe Lewis and covered Joe Lewis, didn't approve of this. But what were they going to do? Plus Griffith wasn't the first gay champion. Panama Al Brown, who was the world weight champion in the 20s, was a homosexual and everyone knew it, but no one mentioned it. The problem is back in that time in 62, homosexuality, unbelievably, was banned everywhere in the United States, I I believe, except Illinois. So as crazy as that sounds, that was the, the state of affairs why did Pert call him Americone? well Perrett was born in Cuba raised in the in the era of machismo machismo and thought being a boxing champion meant you were the most macho of all men you accepted your injuries you kept fighting you didn't complain you just shut up and did your job and so for a person like him who was steeped in machismo he a person who was homosexual or bisexual, to Pratt would be beneath him. That's just my theory. And so he kept teasing him. Even after Gil Clancy had said to Manuel Alfaro, the trainer of Prett, that's over the line. We don't do that. And Angela Dundee, in talking about the fight, said to me, the thing is, you don't want to give – you don't make it personal. When you trash talk, you don't wanna give the guy you're fighting extra motivation to bash your face in. But that's what Perrette was doing. Griffith was furious. He wanted to strangle Perrette. But Gil Clancy had a hold of him, took him away. They had the fight. And although I think Griffith won, Perrette gets the decision. Before the third fight, what I'm about to tell you is mind-boggling. New York State Athletic Commission knew that these two guys did not like each other. And they could have had them weigh in at separate venues, which would have been the smart thing to do. They didn't. So at the weigh in before the third fight, in front of the full media, they strip down to their underwear, like fighters do today, and Griffith gets on the scale. And he's on the scale, and he's looking at the weight, and Perrette, who's standing there in his underwear, before anyone realized what had happened, Perrette s- slipped in behind Griffith, grabbed his derriere, and simulated sodomizing him. People said they could see, literally see smoke coming out of Griffith's ears. Griffith whirled around, looked at him, and said, Tonight, I'm going to kill you. Tonight, I'm going to take your life for that. Gil Clancy grabbed him and said, No, 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 we don't fight now. We fight in the ring for money. Now, Griffith didn't mean that. He didn't want to kill him or kill anyone. But, in the heat of the moment, he'd been violated in a, in a horrific fashion, and that was his response. And so that set the acrimonious tone. The problem with that, of course, aside from being that's so egregious and so homophobic, is that Perrette's corner laughed. They thought it was funny. It didn't occur to them they were the only ones laughing. No one else was laughing. The press stood there with their mouths open, They were shocked. They were just stunned. They couldn't believe what they had just seen. And so that was the stage. This is what had happened before their third fight. So they go to the ring that night. Both of them are bristling with kinetic energy. And they're dancing up and down in the dressing rooms. They can't wait to get to the ring and get at each other so they're making their way the ring entrance and once they get into the ring you know emil griffith had a very unusual mental makeup for a prize fighter griffith was a super sensitive person who cared deeply for other people when i met him and he asked about my parents he said well your mother must be proud and i said you know i didn't really know my mother that well because i was five when she died and she was just 34, she died of cancer. And I'd never met him before, but he started to cry convulsively. Put his hand on my shoulder, that's so terrible. That's not right. I mean, that's how he felt. He was a deeply sensitive person. He saw no reason why Pret should make it personal. In his mind, they'd been friends. This was just business. But now it was more than business because now they weren't just fighting to see who was the better man. In the minds of everyone who was there, including the fighters, they were fighting to see who was more of a man. So they get in the ring and the referee is Hall of Fame referee, Ruby Goldstein, who'd been a great fighter himself in the 20s. They call him the Paderewski with mitts. The only problem Goldstein had was he had no chin, but he was a great referee. And so the fight begins and it followed the pattern of their previous two fights. Perret's doing well in the beginning, and for some reason, Emil Griffith is once again sleepwalking through the fight. And and near the end of the sixth round, he catches Griffith with a beautiful shot, and Griffith goes down on his back, gets up, takes an eight count. And before Perret can follow up his advantage, the bell rings. And he goes back to the corner, and Gil Clancy says to him, you know, you lose here and and that's it. I mean, you're sleepwalking through the fight. Should I stop it now? If you really want to win, you got to show me something this round or I'll stop it. Get out there and punch. And don't stop punching until either he goes down or the referee stops it. So the bell rings for round seven. Excuse me. The bell rings for round seven. Griffith is a changed man. He comes out, and now he's getting in close, and he's letting his hands go, and he's digging these vicious shots, booming left hooks to Perrette's liver, and they're starting to have a real bad effect on Perrette. Perrette, who liked to walk in and slug, realizes he can't do that now against Griffith. But his body's been so ravaged by Griffith's body shots, and he's starting to get tagged frequently with a sickening regularity to the head, and his head keeps snapping back violently all the time, that he has no choice but to lean up against the ropes and just square up against Griffith. And at that stage of the fight, that was exactly the wrong thing to do. And Griffith, round after round, keeps hammering him. And this is one of the ironic points in, in boxing. Pratt was only 25, he was a young man, but he was an old boxer. He had a lot of wear and tear on his body. And the fact that he was fighting Griffith just over three months after taking the worst beating that a fighter had taken in many years from Gene Fulmer was ridiculous. And he had complained of these problems, you know, the nosebleed, the ear bleed, double vision, phenomenal headaches, right up until the night before the fight. So as the fight progresses from round seven on, Griffith is just teeing up on him. He's landing shot after shot after shot. And then we come to the fatal 12th round where he catches Griffith with a couple of shots. Griffith staggers back into the ropes. Excuse me, Pret staggers back into the ropes. And as Perrette staggers back into the ropes, Griffith lands four quick shots. Bang, 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 bang. Left, right, left, right. At that point, Perrette's arms go down. He can't, he, he's no longer able to defend himself. After his arms go down, Griffith still lands another 26 consecutive headshots. Referee Ruby Goldstein is almost it's almost like watching E. Coyote in a Looney Tunes cartoon. You know, when the show in slow motion. He's frozen. He's leaning forward, but nothing's happening. And people are saying, What's he waiting for? What are you doing? He's killing him. And finally, he comes to his senses. Goldstein jumps in, grabs Griffith, at which point Parrett sickeningly slides down unconsciously down the ropes with his arm caught over the ropes and he slides into the canvas like he's sliding into a coffin. And Griffith goes over and starts to celebrate and then he tones because Gil Clancy tells him to tone it down. And And he keeps saying to Gil Clancy, Griffith says, well, Benny will get up, right? And Gil Clancy says, I hope so. Well, Benny will get up, won't he? Hopefully. But Benny's going to get up. Well, we hope he's going to get up. He doesn't get up. He's out cold. He's not moving. Doctors get in the ring, and they're trying frantically to find a pulse. They're trying to get him, you know, to see how his breathing is. There's no response. So they have to stretch him out of the ring, and they take him to Roosevelt Hospital. Now, what happened there at the hospital was you have a doctor Helpburn and several other neurosurgeons. And this was common back then. There was no CAT scans or MRIs, didn't exist back then. That was technology in the future. They drilled four holes, two on each side of his head to allow room for his brain because his brain was swelling. And he remained in a coma for 10 days and he died without regaining consciousness on april 3rd when they did the autopsy dr Helpern said uh he didn't suffer from injuries from previous fights we saw no we saw no evidence of that however i took the autopsy report and sent it to my kid brother who's a doctor and he said well that's not exactly true because at the time they examined his brain his brain was so swollen they wouldn't have been able to see other edemas or hematomas that he had that he had um suffered especially in his fight with former so people like to ask well if he hadn't fought former would he still have died in the griffith fight we don't know what if he fought former but fought someone else other than griffith would he still have died probably former was the coup de grace to Perrette's life, Griffith finished a job. He didn't finish it in the 12th round when the fight ended. Probably in the first couple of rounds when he hit him, it you know, uh, Perrette was starting to go downhill. Perrette had an inordinate amount of fights in such a condensed time period that it was too much. And his style, which is limiting at best, fatal at worst, put his health at risk. As I said before, he had no defensive skills, whatever. Before the fight, my mentor, Angelo Dundee, had said to him, listen, you know, to Alfaro, excuse me, his trainer and manager, he shouldn't be fighting. His reflexes are shot. And Alfaro said, well, if something goes wrong, I'll just go to Cuba and get another boy. After the fight, you know, he got paid 40 grand for that fight. The widow said, widow lucy said there was no money it was gone now i heard rumors that frank costello took it i I never was able to verify that i also his widow said that Manuel alfaro's manager absconded with the money and that would not have been uncommon that happened to a lot of fighters back then what was amazing about griffith of course was after this fight it sort of destroyed not sort of it, it just vanquished part of his soul he was never the same again part of griffith died in the ring that night with perrette he never got over it so till his dying day and the amazing thing about griffith was he still fought 78 more times but he never quite had the killer instinct he scored some knockouts after that and he won the welterweight title he lost, again he lost it to Luis rodriguez and then won it again and then he won the world middleweight title but he was never the same. And if you watch the video Ring of Fire, there's a really heartwarming time when he embraces Perrette's son. And they said, the son said, I don't hold you responsible for what happened. And P- Griffith starts to cry, of course. He never meant to hurt him, he didn't want to take his life. He just he fought a man that had nothing left to give, a man who should not have been allowed to defend his title again. But of course, the humane thing to do would have been for the new york state athletic commission and gene Fomer said this to give him a thorough brain exam or to suspend him for a year or to take away his license for good but as gene Fomer also said when it comes to boxing humanity and boxing seldom ever mix so that's the story of the fight it goes down as one of the most tragic fights in the history of the sport it was also the first uh, at that point in time of three fighters who died within a year or so of each other. The next one uh died was the featherweight champion Davy de Springfield rifle moore and then heavyweight Alexander Laveranti, who was fatally injured just after that, was in a coma for three years and then passed away. But uh I asked people to go and look up the fights of Benny Kid He truly was a great fighter. He was only 25 when he died. Emil Griffith lived to be lived to July twenty second 2013, and he was seventy five years old when he died. I met him many times. He was a wonderful man. He was the victim of a gay bashing just before he died. He was a gentle, kind, generous person who was so nice to everyone that he met. And his disposition—you looked at someone that sweet, and you thought. This is the wrong guy to be in the sport of boxing. But that's where his talents were. That's how brilliant he was in the ring. And the fights with Perrette are the ones that people, of course, will remember forever. There are three great fights. And both men, both men deserve to be remembered forever. And if you have a chance, please, just before I go here, if you have a chance, please go to YouTube and watch all of their fights. These are two great fighters who raised boxing. To the level of an art form and griffith is deservedly in the international boxing hall of fame i'm lou eisen that's been ring talk for today i hope you enjoyed it and we will see you again soon